This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... It seems by all indications that momentum is shifting in favor of the Ethiopian government where it's gaining more territory, it's making inroads into Tigray, and this will have implications for the negotiations that follow. That's Joseph Siegel, who leads the research program at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies on how the dynamics of the Ethiopia-Tigray conflict is shifting. Details coming up also. Gunmen attacked a Nigerian hospital and abducted at least 10 healthcare workers. Traders in Ghana close today to protest spiraling inflation. And one transportation union says it will continue striking in South Africa. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The death toll from heavy flooding in Nigeria has now surpassed 600, with more than 1 million people displaced from their homes. The flooding has covered farms and roads and slowed shipments of food and fuel. Authorities are struggling to free up the gridlock as a jump in prices is already making life more expensive for Nigerians. Timothy Obiezu reports from Central Kogi State, Nigeria. At Danteta Bridge in coastal Kogi State, tons of food and fuel stretch for many kilometers far away from destinations as the impact of Nigeria's worst flooding in 10 years unfolds. The bridge is a link line that allows the crisscross of essentials between northern and southern Nigeria, including Abuja, the capital. But weeks of severe flooding in Kogi State has washed away farmlands and affected access roads, including Dantata Bridge. Abuja resident Bashiru Usman says the effect is seriously being felt in Abuja. He says we are struggling to get fuel. As you can see from the queue, there's no fuel. It's only one filling station in the whole area that sells fuel. Authorities say more than 2 million people in 33 of Nigeria's 36 states have been affected. They blame the flooding on torrential rainfalls that started in July and the release of water from Cameroon's Lagdo Dam. But experts say Nigeria's poor urban planning scheme made matters worse. In some instances, floodwaters covered rooftops leaving communities completely submerged. Halima Sani arrived at this makeshift camp in Lokoja, the Kogi state capital, about one month ago with her eight children. She says food is a major problem. She says before the flood came, my husband and I were farmers. We used to feed on our farm produce. We were about to harvest when the flood came and destroyed everything. She says we were not able to harvest a single crop and our house is underwater. That's why we came here for shelter. I struggle to find something to eat with my children. This week, President Mohamed Buhari directed emergency responders to scale up their interventions and said up to 12 metric tons of grain are being shipped to the most affected areas to help curb the impact of the floods. But camp officials are not certain when the aid will arrive and say they are running out of places to put new arrivals. 
Aliyu Adoga is the camp coordinator. We are still calling on the federal government to come in two ways. Like where these people live, uh, if they can relocate them to somewhere else where they can get new accommodation, then it will be easy for them because this is a yearly occurrence. Economic experts predict food prices will jump by up to 25% by the end of the year as a result of the flooding. They also say the trend could continue next year. Nigerian authorities are planning to hold talks with Cameroon in November about the periodic opening of the Lado Dam. Authorities also say they will be focusing on climate change mitigation during the United Nations Climate Change Conference or the COP27 slated in November in Egypt. But until then, hundreds of thousands displaced here will look for life's basic needs, food, shelter, and clean water. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Kogi State, Nigeria. Traders in Ghana closed their businesses today to protest, spiraling inflation, which stood at 37.2% in September amid reports that Ghana's currency is the worst performing in the world. Kent Mensa reports from Accra, Ghana. The usual hassle and bustle at the central business district of the capital, Accra, was conspicuously missing Wednesday as business activities came to a complete halt. Members of the Ghana Union of Traders Association have closed their shops for the next three days to protest the high cost of doing business. They said they are frustrated because they have lost confidence in the government to revive the economy, which has been severely hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine war. Tina Minta, one of the traders who joined the sit-down protest, spoke to VOA. President Akufuadu has failed us, she said. We didn't know this is how tough things were going to be under his government. She said, I voted for him, but I really regretted it. We have natural resources like cocoa, timber and gold, but look at how we are suffering. She added, we know of the global crisis as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war, but his government should do something about the hardship in Ghana. The president of Guta, Joseph Obin, said, Ghanaian traders are frustrated over increased borrowing costs after the central bank increased its benchmark lending rate by 10 percentage points this year to 24.5% in a bid to control inflation. Now, as we speak, the exchange rate is around 13 Ghana cities to the dollar. Whilst we started the year with a rate of 6.2, at the same time, the commercial lending rate is hovering around 38% when we started the year with around 22%. It is obvious that we cannot contain this any longer as it is increasingly getting unbearable. We want to give a pinch to the government to recognize that there is a sense of urgency in this situation. The president's advisory body, the Council of State, talked with the traders Tuesday in a bid to prevent the protest, but the meeting was inconclusive. Daniel Amate, an economist with the Accra-based Policy Initiative for Economic Development, PIED, said the government must address the situation by getting the traders to open their shops immediately because it could have dire consequences on the economy. Firstly, it could affect revenue generation. 
uh, because we know our economy is largely informal. Government, government get a lot of revenue from these traders, and once they've closed up the shop and they are not selling, uh, they will not pay the taxes that is expected. Uh, secondly, a few people who may not comply with the directive from, uh, from the union could take advantage and increase prices because people will be looking for the goods to buy. And, you know, so there, there's a possibility of slowing the economic growth, further worsening our conditions. The government is currently in talks with the International Monetary Fund, IMF, for a $3 billion loan to support its economic programs. Amata is optimistic that it is the government's safest bet to bring back public confidence. Kent Mensah for VUA News, Accra, Ghana. The South African Transport and Allied Workers Union, SATWU, says it will continue striking at the country's ports and railways despite an agreement that is seeing most employees return to work. Satwu describes a wage deal between state freight authority, Transnet, and a fellow union as a betrayal of workers. Thousands of transportation workers went on strike almost two weeks ago, suspending freight services, stalling exports, and costing the economy billions of dollars. Darren Taylor reports. Transnet's deal with the United National Transport Union, UNTU, will guarantee annual wage increases of around 6% for the next three years for port, rail and pipeline workers. It's a big concession by the union, which, like Satau, initially demanded a salary increase of more than 13%. The deal between Transnet and UNTU which represents more than half of the parastatal's unionized 50,000-strong labor force, has infuriated Satau. We are rejecting this sell-out position of this 6% and the whole package. The strike is still continuing. It is protected and it is formal. It is reasonable and it is legal. Satau shop steward in Johannesburg, Richard Mosia, says members won't accept anything below South Africa's current inflation rate. 7.6% and above is the position of Satau. Anything below that is equated to an insult. I'm not worried about the majority union which has signed a package that does not talk to the interest of workers. There are clauses there that talk to restructuring. What are they saying about that? Mosia says the restructuring that Transnet speaking of could mean mass retrenchments of workers in the near future. He says Satawu wants a deal that guarantees job security. But Transnet says it's already been more than fair, and its position now is that negotiations are over. Because we have signed with the majority union, the strike is now unprotected. Transnet Employee Relations Chief Neo Bodibe explains that in terms of South African labor law, any deal concluded with the majority union applies also to members of other unions. Of course, we would want to talk to Satau, not so much for the purposes of looking at whether we sign a different agreement, but really for the purposes of making sure that we are able to all come back together united to face the task ahead. That task, she says, is monumental, as megatons of imports and exports have piled up at harbours. President Cyril Ramaphosa says the strike has devastated the economy. High-value exports, including iron ore, coal, precious metals and fresh produce, 
haven't made it to international markets. The Minerals Council of South Africa says the shutdown has cost the mining sector alone 80 billion rands, almost four and a half billion dollars in losses. The country's Freight Forwarders Association says supply delays have cost the economy at least 13 billion rands. Bordibe says Transnet's implementing a recovery plan to clear backlogs. Our first focus, our first priority is for time-sensitive cargo. So, for example, we met with the fruit exporters to see how we clear the perishable fruit exports. Another item that is on our list of priorities is medical supplies. And then another priority after that is for us to clear the hazardous cargo as well. We are hopeful that as all of our workers return back to work, we will be able to clear this cargo in as short a time as possible. But Satau says it will put the brakes on that recovery for as long as necessary. It maintains its members won't return to work now, despite what any labor law says. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehye Suhib in Washington. Please note, we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There, you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Ethiopian government forces are advancing in the country's Tigray region. Reports indicate they have captured three towns, including Shere, a city with a pre-conflict population of 100,000, about 50 kilometers from the border with Eritrea. The rebels confirm that Shere and other areas have fallen, in their words, to invading forces. Joseph Siegel leads the research program at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. His research interests include understanding the role of governance in advancing security and development, security trends in Africa, stabilization of fragile states, democratic transitions, and strengthening institutions of democratic accountability. I first asked Dr. Siegel if the dynamics in this long, drawn-out conflict is shifting. It seems by all indications that momentum is shifting in favor of the Ethiopian government, where it's gaining more territory, it's making inroads into Tigray, and this will have implications for the negotiations that follow. You know, both sides are trying to establish as strong a position as possible prior to negotiations so they can you know, leverage the best deal possible. And so I think that's what's motivating the, the government to continue. I think the, the big question we want to be looking at uh, in terms of things spiraling out of control is to what extent the government proceeds as a stabilizing force or as a force that's exacting retribution. During earlier phases of the conflict, it seems when the government would make inroads in Tigray, it wouldn't just be going after the, the TPLF leadership, but it was also taking punishment out on uh, the Tigrayan population. And I think that's the big question uh, we want to be looking at now. Ultimately, this war is about what kind of federal state Ethiopia is going to be. And as we look at the situation now in Tigray, 
The question is, how is Tigray going to be reincorporated into Ethiopia? And to the extent government proceeds uh, in a generous manner, uh, in a manner that's respectful of the Tigrayan population, it will be much easier to proceed with reintegration and to realize a, a stable Ethiopia moving forward. And what is the role of Eritrea in all this? The Eritrean role has always been very opaque and uh, and hard to discern. Clearly, they've been working alongside the Ethiopian government. The most obvious motivation for the Eritreans is one of retribution against the TPLF, given that it was the TPLF leadership that was in charge when there was the border conflict with Eritrea 20 years ago. And uh, an Eritrean president, Afwerki, uh, has never forgotten that. And he uh, holds a grudge against the TPLF. And so that is part of the, the motivation. And that's part of the risk for where this conflict is at, because the Eritreans are not necessarily acting in the interest of Ethiopia. They're not necessarily acting towards what is best, what's the best outcome for a federated uh, Ethiopian state. You know, they're pursuing their own interest, and that could be very destabilized. Lastly, you said there is a shift in the field. There is a shift in, in the politics. What do you envision in the next days or weeks? to be happening in the Tigray region? The, you know, there's a couple of scenarios that we could see. On the one hand, you know, we could see uh, a new stalemate emerge and both sides recognize that in the end, this is a political dispute that has to be resolved through negotiations. And this latest jockeying is a matter of just getting the best leverage for those negotiations. And so then we'll, re- we'll see a resumption of the of the dialogue and discussions about a peace settlement, which both sides believe have indicated it that they're interested in doing. I think that's one scenario. Uh, another scenario is that the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian government feels that it has gained upper hand and it is making significant advantage and, and will just proceed until it secures you know, the key facilities within Tigray and will then be in a much stronger position to demand, you know, a capitulation from the TPLF and be in a, a stronger position for the negotiations of what that means for Tigray's role uh, as part of uh, a federal structure uh, under Ethiopia moving forward. And I think a third scenario is that the fighting proceeds, TPLF withdraws to its mountainous, rugged holdout areas, and then maintain some sort of guerrilla uh, activity in Tigray and, and the surrounding regions for some time to come, maintaining a high level of uh, instability in the region. And so you know, that scenario is a good incentive for the Ethiopian government to go ahead and proceed to negotiation, try to figure out a, a political settlement to this that's going to be enduring and stabilizing for the whole region. That was Joseph Siegel from the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He talked with me from Washington, D.C. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, 
the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is David Jonjo. I'm 38 years old. I'm the COO and co-founder at Grow Greek, and I am a proud Kenyan. We applied primarily because um, we met the criteria um, once we saw the announcement uh, coming out. And we saw this as an opportunity for us to spread our gospel um, you know, to, to other markets and to other people to get uh, you know, sort of recognition from, from, from others um, outside there in the market and people in, in other countries um, is a big achievement for ourselves. So it's something that we are proud of. Basically, Grow a Greek uh, is an end-to-end solution, providing farmers with logistical, financial, um, and market support. So we work with farmers from inception when they're starting. We train farmers. Um, we provide them with financing for, for all the inputs that they require. Um, we help monitor their farming process. We put, we've created digital record-keeping tools um, where farmers are able to manage their farms um, and track how well they're performing. At the end of the farming cycle, then we help them also sell their produce um, at, for competitive prices. There's a huge gap um, across Africa in terms of, of, of food production, and we, are, we, are, we haven't been able to feed our population. So by helping these farmers increase their production, then we're also helping to fill that gap and ensure there is enough food to go around for the population. We also have programs where we're also en enabling the youth, um, so where we work with experienced farmers and we match them with, with um, a, farm, a newbie, so to speak, farmers who are, who are setting up. And through learning from them and ha having that knowledge transfer, then we're able to sort of improve um, and create employment opportunities. So the first thing we will do when we win the competition um, will be to celebrate um, with, 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 with our farmers, um, with the people within the team that, that we've been really working hard um, to get up to this point, um, and then use the resources that, that are going to be deployed um, uh, to us um, to expand our offering, um, to improve on our processes, um, and get to a point where we're able to move the needle towards obtaining our vision of having over half a million uh, farmers by the end of 2025. That was David Njonjo from Kenya. His company, Grow Agric, is one of the 10 finalists in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Africa Business Center, Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. Tensions have risen to a fever pitch over the last 24 hours between Mali and France. Mali's Foreign Minister, Abdoulaye Diop, now says his country reserves the right to defend itself if France continues to, in his words, undermine his country's sovereignty and national security. At, at a UN Security Council briefing yesterday, Diop accused France of violating Mali's airspace and delivering arms to militants in the north of the country. He called for a Security Council meeting to, in his words, bring to light evidence of uh, uh, acts of espionage and acts of destabilization waged by France. Relations have soured between Mali and its former colonial ruler since a coup occurred in the West African country in 2020. France has defended its intervention in Mali, calling it fully transparent. 
Its representative said France never violated any airspace. Mali's foreign minister also denied his country's forces have violated human rights, an accusation made by the United Nations and other rights groups. Several reports have accused the Malian army and Russian mercenaries of being involved in civilian deaths and colluding with the extremist forces. Diop called the allegations unfounded. Mali has suffered from instability since 2012 when militants hijacked a Tuareg rebellion in the north. On Monday, four UN peacekeepers were killed when their vehicle hit an improvised explosive device in the Kidal region of Mali. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.